1 John chapter 1. Last week we began this study and we looked at uh, kind of an introductory message talking about the writer, talking about the purpose behind the writing. Uh, The purpose behind writing this was really uh, threefold and one of which we looked at last week in verse 4. He says, these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. And so he continues on and he writes more. But before we go on, I want to start and review what we learned last week, which is um, that which was from the beginning was revealed in the open. See, there were people that were coming along and contesting the teaching of the apostles, saying that Jesus was not, in fact, the Messiah, and that he definitely wasn't the Son of God. And so what the writer John wants to propose to us first is that when Jesus came on the scene, he wasn't presenting a new God but he was with God from the beginning. And if you look at John chapter 1, he says that which was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and now has become flesh. And so in the same vein, the writer, being the same gospel writer of John, is also writing this letter. He says that which was from the beginning, which any good story starts from the beginning, was revealed in the open. Jesus wasn't hidden somewhere and just sneakily going around telling people stuff. He actually revealed himself to crowds. He revealed himself to the nation. In some cases, he actually went to the other side of the nation, other side of the Sea of Galilee, and revealed himself there. And so with that being the case, he says, this man that we're speaking about, that we live for now, actually uh, was not something that happened in the dark, but he actually was walking in the light. Everything that he taught was something he taught out in the open. And I think that's interesting because he says that which was from the beginning, but I'm going to turn real quick. You don't have to. Interestingly enough, the prophet Malachi in chapter 5 verse 2 says this. It says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you meaning out of Bethlehem, shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And so this ruler that he's talking about isn't somebody that that has been around for a long time. It's not a time period, but he says, this person that's going to come up out of your ranks, O Judah, your descendant, the descendant of the, the king of David, is actually going to be from everlasting. And if you look up that word in the Hebrew, it actually means beyond the vanishing point. So think about it. You're standing in a big field, and that big deer comes out, and it's in your sight. And if you got the right gun, it's within your sights, and you can take it out, right? But there's a certain point where it walks a little bit further away, and it's just out of sight. It's beyond the vanishing point, no longer in your grasp. Well, think about that with time. We know certain amounts of time, but there's a certain amount of time in our memories. Even think back when you were young, where you really don't have any memories. All of us have that first memory, right? That's like when we start thinking things existed because we now remember existing. But the reality is, is God is outside of time. He stepped into time to be Jesus, to take on human flesh, to be in time, space, and matter. And so this ruler, this Jesus is from everlasting, which doesn't mean a long time ago. It means that he's from before time, if that makes sense. And so this first verse has so much more in it 
than we realize when we dig into it. So John says, him who we heard with our ears, who we gazed upon, we said last week we steadfastly looked at him. It wasn't like a, just a glimpse. We gazed upon. He's been, who we've been touched by, we now have fellowship with, and we declare him to you. Why do we declare this Jesus to you? Why is it important that as Christians, we declare Jesus to the people that are in our lives? John says that he declares Jesus to us so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. Now, John writes these things so that your joy may be full. So as you continue on in verse 5 of 1 John, he says, This is the message which we have heard from him, and we declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. There's that word again. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, if you're a person who writes in your Bible, you got the freedom to do that, take your pen and underline all sin. We'll get to that in a little bit. But he says, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and justified or just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, there's that word again, unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John makes this point in the first four verses that the point in knowing the truth is so that we can have fellowship with God and in turn, fellowship with one another. So he says here, if we say that we have fellowship with God, so he says God is light. He starts talking about God, not us. He says, let's start with someone that does not change. Let's start with a measuring point that doesn't move. Let's start with God. God is light. And then he says, to emphasize his point that God is light. He says, in him is no darkness. Now, if you know Hebrew scholarship at all, when they repeat something or if they say something that sounds redundant to us, if you said the light's on and that room is not dark, we would never say that because people would be rolling their eyes at us and going, yeah, you just said that, that you're wasting words. But in Hebrew, especially if you read the Psalms, Anytime they take an idea and they say it in a different way right after it, it's not redundant. It's actually for emphasis. So he says, God is light and in him there is no darkness. So if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, then we lie. So interestingly enough, what is fellowship? Church people say fellowship all the time. We're going to have a fellowship dinner. We're going to have something in the fellowship hall in the church I grew up in. That fellowship is just this word that we use. And I don't know if you know this or not, but to non-church people, it sounds creepy. It always did to me. I'm like, fellowship. Okay. It's like the fellowship of the ring 
Like we're going to, you know, stash our bags. We're going to go to Mordor and get rid of the ring. Like what are we doing here? So, but fellowship, and I love this definition, but we'll get a better one here in a second. The word in the Greek is koinonia. And if you know anything about this word, they actually had to make it up in order to fit the meaning of the, the full scale meaning of the word. It means participation in God's love and life. It means agreement with God's own love and life. It means that we are united at one with God in the way that he loves, in his love itself, and in his life. We're actually participants in God's life. The life that he lived through Jesus is now the life that we live. We've been given the Spirit of God so that we can live out, we can manifest Jesus in the way that we live in union with his plan for his creation. That we are actually agents, we're ambassadors, if you will, of Christ. And so he gives us his Spirit, we obey the Spirit, and as we do, we actually fulfill his will, his plans, his authority on earth. But what's interesting about this is that that definition isn't southeast Missouri like I am. So I've heard this verse, or this, this definition. How do you define fellowship? It's two fellows in a ship battling in the same direction. And I like that because you can be in a boat, if you've ever been canoeing on the, on the current river or on Black River, with a person that's not in unity with you, and then you're paddling in different directions. But fellowship with God is that we are in the boat with him, and as we see what direction he's paddling in, we fall under him and we paddle in the same direction. When he says backpedal on the back, we do that while he's going forwards. And whatever he wants us to do, we work in unity with him, not against him. And so fellowship with God is something that makes the life so much more useful and meaningful and sometimes economical and sometimes not. But the interesting thing about this is that he gives us the free will to say, no, I don't want to walk in step with you. I want to stay out of step. I want to do my own thing. And Proverbs says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But I love what uh, one of the guys that I listened to said. He said, what the literal translation is, is the fool says in his heart, no, God. No, you're not in charge. I'm going to be in charge. And so we put ourselves at odds with the creator of the universe. His will is still going to be fulfilled, but we don't get to experience the joy of being part of it. As a matter of fact, we experience the consequences of rejecting his counsel because he knows better than we do. Just like we always tell our kids, I know better than you. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. But the reality is God the Father always does. And he does it for our, his, good, his purposes and our good. So turn with me to John chapter 14 and verse 19. Remember, we're reading and we're looking at the idea of fellowship. Jesus speaking to his disciples, foretelling his death. He says, a little while longer and the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So that's confusing. 
right? Because he's using this in term, but there's like multiple layers. But he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. Now go down to verse 23. Jesus, oh, excuse me, don't skip 22. He says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the whole world? In verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our dwelling or our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So, Part of loving God is actually hearing his word and responding in the affirmative, believing and acting accordingly. So back in 1 John, where he says, if we say, verse 6, that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. So if we say and yet we don't do, we're actually lying. And, and so why do we do this? Why do we say one thing and live another way? You know, we also, you ever notice that kids are the first ones to notice hypocrisy? We do. I mean, we'll, parents, we learn this early on. When my kids are at the age they are now, if I say one thing and I do another, they're the first ones to call me on it because they see the hypocrisy. Well, how come you're not doing that? That's a good question. Why am I not doing that? There's hypocrisy in me. So why does mankind reject the counsel of God? Why do we reject living the way that we say that we do? And why do we walk this way? Well, in John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most uh, quoted verses in all of Scripture says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in this name of the only son of God, the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So the difference between the child of God who literally walks in the light, and the child of darkness, who walks in darkness, is not what they say, but it's what they believe and do. So here's the deal. We, as believers, understand that the light of God is meant to be shown on us, and it's for our good. But to someone who is doing evil, when you shine a flashlight into their car in the middle of the night, they do not like it. Because whatever they were doing is exposed. You go down to Country Mart or County Mart in Arcadia, and you see that parking lot full of cars, we all know what's going on there. Nothing good. 
That's why they are not in the lot with lights. They are in the dark lot because no one can see what they're doing. But we all know they're up to dumb stuff. But someone shows up down there. Drew Warren pulls up in his highway patrol car and takes that little light on the side of his car and shines it over there. Do they go, hey, how's it going? Or do they go, and they scatter like roaches. They're like, we're out. See you guys. They, they don't like the light because their deeds are evil. Now, I don't actually know what's going on down there. I just know what was happening at the gas station that had no lights in Farmington when I was growing up. Because I was hanging out there, and I know what was going on there, and I know why we were there, and I know when we would leave, when the lights turned on. And that's always true. And so here's the deal. If we say that we have fellowship with God, and He is light, and yet when light shines on us, we scatter, I'm going to basically say this, that I'm not walking in the light. I'm, I'm lying, and I'm not in fellowship with God. I'm not walking according to the truth. So God is light, and in him is no darkness. Excuse me. <laughs> Got this, like, deviated deal. I can't sleep without making that noise, and apparently... According to a comedian, when you get to a certain age, you can't talk without doing that. So you're welcome. My little clicker's not working, Stephen. Verse 7. <laughs> now you're all awake again. Verse 7. He says this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the beauty is, is that if we walk, if we say we walk in light and we don't, then our deeds are not exposed and we're left deceived still and caught in sin. But if we will go through the painful process of allowing God to shine his light on us, and instead of scattering like roaches, we actually embrace the light, though it be painful for a moment, he actually uses that light to expose what our heart is actually like inside. And it says there that we now have fellowship restored with God and the blood of Jesus. Now that we're allowing our sin to be exposed can be healed and cleansed. And everything that sin has bent and twisted, God's now able to heal and make right again. It's interesting to me because if you... If you look at what he's saying here, he says if we walk in the light or in agreement with what Jesus calls sin, then we can actually have fellowship with God. He says if you don't walk in the light, you're still in darkness. You're only deceiving yourself. But if you walk in the light in agreement with God, that there's actually, you can be set free. No longer chained. And I love this because I walked for years going, why can't I have victory over my sin and my flesh? And it was because I was not allowing God to expose the wickedness that was in my heart. Now, he says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What is sin? Well, first of all, it's a word that we've struck from our society. Sin is a thing, and it's qualitative, it's quantitative. God has specific things he calls sin. But the basic definition is to miss the mark. Now, we can miss the mark. You deer hunters know we can miss the mark when we're trying to hit the spot, 
And we can miss the mark on purpose, right? So a sin of commission is to miss the mark intentionally. I know where the target is. I know how to hit it. I can't miss, but you know what? I'm going to choose to miss. I know what God's regulations are. I know what his law says. I know what he calls sin, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's a sin of commission. A sin of omission is to miss the mark when you were trying to hit it. A sin of omission is when you sin and yet it was unintentional. You weren't aiming at displeasing God, but you did it on accident. You did it ignorantly. But the beauty is, is that when God cleanses us through the blood of his son, he actually restores fellowship between us and God. He reconciles us. He makes atonement for our sin. If you don't know what atonement means, think of it this way, at one He makes us at one once again with God. Why is this important? Because fellowship with God wasn't just uh, lost when you sinned the first time. Fellowship with God was lost for mankind back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is where I'm headed. God created the heavens and the earth. He, he brought light. He created a, a separation between the water and the earth, and he set everything in place. And, and then at the end of it all, he starts creating man. And he says in verse 26 of Genesis 1, he said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So, God is keeping a promise when he restores fellowship. Now, it was all good here. It was leave it to beaver for creation. Everything was going great. No problems, no worries. They had the music in the background. It's all Tweety Birds. And yet, what happens is that in Genesis chapter 3, something interesting happens. Satan comes in in the form of a serpent and speaks to Eve. But after he tempts her, we're not going to focus on that this morning. It, it says in verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were told not to eat from was good for food, she made a practical decision, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was a tree desirable, she had a desire for it, to make her wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So God told them one commandment. It was simple. 
don't eat from this tree. Eat from anything else in the garden, but don't eat from this tree. And so they had fellowship with God when this commandment was made. And the one transgression they made is they ate the fruit. doesn't matter the reason. They broke the command, and fellowship at that point is broken. And they heard, notice this in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This was something they used to do every day. Can you imagine getting up in the cool of the morning, especially this time of year, walking in the garden, just talking with the Lord? And it says there, Adam and his wife hid. They hid themselves. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide? Because God was getting close. Did they hide before when he got close? No, but now they do. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, did God know where he was? Yes. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? And then he said, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now I pose this to you as a thought. Do you think that when God asked those questions that it hurt? This is somebody that they interacted with all the time, God. And now God's asking them, did you do something that I asked you not to do? And the answer that they're going to give is, uh, I did, but it wasn't, it wasn't my idea. They're going to blame everybody else. Because that's what we do. When, when God exposes our deeds, we give all these excuses. Well, you see the circumstances, or so-and-so said, or I didn't know, you know. But God told them plainly what the commandment was, and they disobeyed. So then God comes to them and asks for a confession. Tell me that you broke what I told you to do. Now, Lucy is six years old. When she messes up, I ask her, what did you do? And eventually she'll tell me, but at first she doesn't want to tell me because she thinks that she is righteous and she's finding out that she sins and she doesn't want to tell me because it hurts to tell me because she wants our relationship to be two thumbs up. But what happens is when we sin, we always offend someone. And many times when we sin, we think about the people that it offends. But the reality is when we sin, we first and foremost sin against God, and our sin separates us from him. So that's the problem that started in Genesis. And death started because we had broken fellowship with our source of life, who is God, who is eternal. And so all that said, uh, God promised back there in Genesis 3. I left my verses too quickly. Genesis 3, from that point on, God pronounces a curse. Verse 14, he says, So the Lord God said to the servant, serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise 
his heel. So God says, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to destroy the one who brought sin into the world, and I'm going to do it through the seed of the woman. Now, we know from the New Testament that the seed of the woman was the only begotten Son of God who came through a woman, Mary, Jesus. And it says, he shall bruise your head, Satan, and you will bruise his heel. Now, bruise is temporary. It's not permanent. So we know that Jesus was bruised. He was marred. He was killed, but his life was not completely wiped out because he rose from the dead. And yet here we have it. He did that so that we would have the opportunity to have fellowship with God restored because of our rebellion, because of our transgression, because we broke God's law. And yet he says here, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And what I think is really cool about this is because is, is that in these verses, this verse says to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word cleanse there is a present uh, word. It means um, continually cleanses. So it's not just a cleansing that you get at the day that you accept Jesus, receive him and surrender your life to him. Say, I want you to save me. But it's a cleansing that is available to us until we die that he's making us new, and that as we sin in our day-to-day life, if we'll confess it, he'll actually forgive us, restore fellowship, and he'll wash us of all unrighteousness. That's wonderful news. So how do I know that if I'm walking in the light? How do I know? He says here in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves and the truth's not in us. But, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So how do I know if I'm walking in the light? Well, I have there for you, verse 8 says, number one, your first option is to say, I don't have any sin. But if you say that, you're robbing yourself of the opportunity to have your sin removed. It's like the person that's told by their doctor, you have cancer. But we, there's good news. There's, there's an opportunity to be healed from it. And the person says, I don't have cancer. Now, if I say that I don't have cancer and everything else proves that I do, and I reject that diagnosis, I get all the different, uh, basically, people tell us, you know, you go second opinions, and they all say the same thing. And I say, no, I don't. Am I really changing my state that I'm in? No. And I'm actually robbing myself of any opportunity to get better. And so verse 9, the alternative is if we confess our sin. So the first verse, verse 8 says, if we have no sin. Verse 9 says, but if we confess our sin, basically saying, I do have sin, then there's good news for you. If you recognize that you have sinned and you're willing to humble yourself and confess that sin, then you will be exposed. And what Satan will say to you is, everybody's going to know. And then they're going to they're bring it up again. And everybody's going to think differently of you. Who stinking cares? Who cares? Because that's the one thought 
that will keep you from receiving any cleansing and healing and restoration. If you're worried about what other people will think of you and that keeps you from confessing, (laughs) the fear of man brings a snare, is what Proverbs says. But those who fear the Lord will be saved. And so all unrighteousness is what he offers to cleanse us of. We're exposed in the light if we say that we have sin. And I love this because in James chapter 5, it says this in verse 13, He's giving them all these reasons to ask for prayer. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And we all do when we're suffering, right? We pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. If someone's cheerful, you can't stop them from singing, no matter how bad they are, no matter how embarrassing it is. When you're cheerful and you got a song on your heart, if you're one of those people, it doesn't stop. My daughter will not stop singing in our house. I can't get a quiet moment, but at the same time, in the moments where I really recognize it, she's just happy, thankful for happy children. He says, let him call for the, he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And then he says in verse 16, something that I think that we don't naturally do. You know, all these other things. When I'm sick, I ask for prayer. When I'm suffering, I ask for prayer. When I'm happy, I sing. I have a joyful noise coming from my heart. But he says, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So if you are caught in sin, there is this precept in scripture that is if you will allow yourself to be exposed and you will go to a brother or a sister someone that you trust that you know won't take advantage of you and use the information against you in the body of christ and say i have sin in my life and i cannot defeat the thing i need you to pray for me why don't we do that because we don't want our deeds to be exposed we don't want each other to know that we are jacked up we don't want that because think people will think other of me. But don't look at it like that. Look at it like this. I want to be set free from my sin. And when Jesus forgives me, I want him to be glorified because Jesus can only heal the sick. You can't heal somebody that says that they're not sick. Jesus can only forgive sin that is called sin. Not a mistake, not a oopsie, but a sin against God. And I know this because if you turn with me to Psalm chapter 51, one of the most great sinners in all of the Old Testament, King David. And yet, and yet the Old Testament calls him a, a man after God's own heart. And when David finally was, had his sin exposed by the prophet that came to him and called him out on it, and David was soft enough to go, you know what? I got to stop hiding. It had been a year, by the way. He sinned with Bathsheba, and a year went by, and he just tried to cover it up, act like it wasn't there. And here's the deal sin finds you out. Trust me. Been walking with the Lord for 12 years. The Lord is still exposing sin that he wants to set me free from. But what happens is in Psalm 51, when he finally says, I'm going to stop running from repentance, he prays this. 
Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. That's where it starts, admitting you have a problem, admitting that there is sin in you. It's humbling, but it's good. And my sin is always before me. God doesn't allow his children to be comfortable in sin. Against you, he says, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Then he says this, and this is the verse that everyone quotes, create in me a clean heart. God desires to create in us a clean heart, but it starts with us initiating and saying, I don't have a clean heart. The Bible teaches that in man's heart proceeds wickedness and vileness and evil. It's not the world that's making you sin, it's your sinful heart. Stop blaming everything else and everyone else. But once we confess our sin, He is just and righteous and so loving. He doesn't go, I can't believe you did that and turn us away. He says, that's why my son died. So that you could be cleansed and made new. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is how he saves. By the confession with the lips and the believing in the heart, Romans 10 says. And then he says, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Now look at the fruit of repentance. It's not just your salvation. It's also the salvation of those who hear your testimony of God's grace. Because he says there in verse 13, then I will teach other transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. He says, then I shall teach others. He's not saying, I've never experienced forgiveness, but I've heard about it and I know other people need it. So now I'm going to tell other people they need to repent. He's saying, as a partaker of this salvation, as a sinner saved by grace, who's experienced the mercy and the compassion of God, God could have snuffed out David entirely. You know what the penalty was for adultery? Death by stoning in the public square. Death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And eternal life, by the way, is not an amount of time that we're given to us. It's a quality of life. And that quality of life is what I have down for you there. Fellowship with the Father that starts now. The kingdom of God is not about meat or drink, Romans chapter 14 says. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy. And those who are allowed into the kingdom of God, who have righteousness, every one of us are going to be up there celebrating the fact that we didn't deserve to be there. 
Because the righteousness that we've been given is the righteousness we've received as a gift by faith in the Son of God. So he says in verse 10, 1 John 1, He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, as believers, we say that we haven't sinned, we're actually making God a liar. It's like saying God and I are buddies, but he's a big liar about me. What he says isn't true. So to continue in that is, is actually harmful to us. I'm out of time this morning. I was going to tell you about the Apostle Paul. But I want you to read the book of Acts if you get a chance this week. Here's your homework assignment. None of you will do it. Hopefully some of you will. But Paul the Apostle thought he was walking in the light. He was self-righteous. His life changed course when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And, and in the presence of Jesus, he was made blind so that God would reveal to him that though you think you're walking in the light, you're actually walking in darkness and you're persecuting me. And at that point, Paul was converted to follow Jesus. And he said, what do you want me to do, Lord? And so uh, that's for another time. Maybe I'll teach it next week. I had so much in there though. So that's my own fault. So in 1 John chapter 2, I want to remind you he says there, the chapter breaks at a wrong spot here, okay? So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, these things I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the payment for our sin, the propitiation, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. So John writes to you that as believers so that he could keep us from a lifestyle of sin. And I love this. He says, but if anyone does sin, he wants us to remain completely sinless. But you and I recognize, if we're realistic about ourselves, that we are going to transgress, that we are going to sin. And so if that is in fact the case, and we do sin, recognize he's not going to kick you out on the curb. He's made it possible so that if we do sin or we have sin, we have a defense attorney. The word there is parakletos. It means advocate, a comforter, one who comes alongside to help you, one who stands up for you, one who will speak up for you on your behest. It's like the best defense attorney ever. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's not doing it for a paycheck. He's not doing it because he wants his win count to be up. He's doing it because that's what he does. He stands up for us. He comforts us. He advocates for us. When Satan comes against us and accuses us of unrighteousness, we have Jesus standing there at the right hand of God the Father, the judge, and saying, no, no, this one's mine. Satan says this, but I say other. He's believed in me. He's righteous because of what I've done. And right then, guess what? The case is dismissed. No more court proceedings, no more hearings. And so we have him as our defense attorney. And the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a person of all sin. There is absolutely no reason that anyone here today should leave still trapped in sin. It's all been provided so you can be set free. So my last slide here, that is the last slide.
like I said. So let's pray. Father, we can